Yeah, well, the easy way to do it is, well, to avoid politics before we get into design is just to talk about science. Yeah. Because like, I feel like that's less divorced from politics as a subject. There's all sorts of scientific things that we don't want to believe, you know, like ice cream makes you fat. Because <laughs> who wants to believe that? And we tell ourselves all sorts of micro lies, you know, like, oh, I need the sugar or, you know, there's dairy. <laughs> but um, science doesn't change just because you want it to be different. Do you think that there are people out there that don't eat ice cream because they don't believe the science that it's going to make them fat? No, I think there's people that do eat ice cream because they don't believe the science is going to make them fat. Oh, I think that might be what I meant to say. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, th I think probably. See, I was just, there was so much cognitive dissonance there. <laughs> Sorry, just to, I have to have home from work today. I'm having cognitive dissonance. <laughs> this is Charles. And this is Rachel. From BNV Radio. This is Design Goggles. This week's show is titled Post Truth Design and is part two of a three part series. It might feel like post truth is a new phenomenon, but it's always been very much a part of the human condition. People have a need to agree with one another, and communities are formed around sets of shared values and beliefs. They make us feel like we belong, but when our beliefs get challenged by facts, things get complicated. We believe strongly in one thing, and then we're confronted with a reality that says something very different. This moment is called cognitive dissonance. It can be uncomfortable and even scary, but also an opportunity to grow and embrace new ideas. The modern post-truth era has set off a cascade of cognitive dissonance all over the world, not only in politics, but in the arts as well. Graphic design, which plays a huge role in translating ideas, is sometimes used as a tool to obscure the truth, but other times provides a vital avenue of challenging misconceptions. Can design play an equal and opposite role in standing up for facts in the post-truth era? Is graphic design, being home to the very text we read, ground zero for the post-truth debate? To help us with that question and more, we are joined by Gabriel Stromberg, co-founder and creative director of Civilization, a graphic design practice here in Seattle. Gabriel, thank you so much for making time to sit and chat with us. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. We are excited to have you. So before we get into our second deep dive on post-truth, I did want to hear a little bit about how you arrived in Seattle and what it's been like watching Seattle change. We've all had kind of different experiences as that evolution took place. How long have you been here? I moved to Seattle in 2003. I moved from New York City. And when I moved here, it was just a sleepy rock town. And especially in the last five years, it's it's changed so much. It's really hard to believe. What was the first clue it was not that sleepy rock town anymore? I think when I was walking down my street in a neighborhood that I've lived for, gosh, at that point, about eight years, I was at an intersection and there were three cars at the intersection and they were all Audis. I was like, we're not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> Something's different. What neighborhood did you live in when you first moved here? I actually lived within a 10 block radius the whole time I've been here. I live in Capitol Hill. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I live uh, not far from the Cornish Music School and I really love it. Hopefully I'll be able to stay there. Uh, I won't get priced out like all my friends have. Yeah, myself included. <laughs> I moved to Capitol Hill when I first moved here and I think I lasted a year. This is a specific question I have, actually, because sometimes when my friends from New York visit, they make a parallel between Soho or the village mm -hmm. and sort of like if you turn the clock back 20 years or 15 years, the same sort of trajectory. Do you get that sense, too, on Capitol Hill? Yeah. And, you know, when I lived in New York, I think that transition had already happened. I mean, mm -hmm. I remember walking down Soho and it's just like a big shopping mall. Right. 
So, but I, I know that, um, you know, I, one of my favorite things to do is to look at pictures, old pictures of New York City, like from the 80s. It seems like such an amazing time of it being a creative center. Hopefully that time hasn't passed for Seattle. Do you think that is this time? I, I used to actually run a, a community art space in Capitol Hill called No Space Gallery. And the whole neighborhood was just filled with, you know, artists and musicians and students. And it's a little different now. Mm -hmm. And I mean... I kind of miss the old days sometimes. <laughs> Where do you think that center is now in, in the greater Seattle area? Gosh, that's a good question. I mean, things have changed so much. Now you have all these people coming in and working for these big tech companies. And I would imagine that kind of realities for people at a certain age are maybe different mm -hmm. now. I mean, people are going to work these companies now in their 20s. Right. The thing that I miss most about Seattle was that there was this kind of creative class and uh, they were a little bit more, maybe not quite as well paid. <laughs> <laughs> Sadly, probably true. Yeah. And so you could have people in the neighborhood that weren't just, you know, working for tech companies. You had people doing all types of things, you know, teachers, artists, uh, musicians, craftspeople. Now I feel like maybe it's not as accessible for people that have more of a creative lifestyle like that. Mm -hmm. Do you think that programming is the new creative class? Is that even true? You know, architects in Seattle don't intersect as much with the technology world, but civilization definitely, it seems like, has one foot in that realm. You guys do UX. Do you view that as a creative culture? Absolutely, especially our version of it. Uh, we have an amazing development team. Our lead developer is also a really well-known artist in Seattle uh, and beyond. He was actually just written about in the New York Times. So we have a very special, I think, uh, situation at our studio. Everyone's, you know, really creative and everyone collaborates really well. And it's a really great mix. I was chatting with your co-founder, Michael, recently. We were talking a little bit about post-truth design. And last week, we talked to another guest, Chris Gio. We talked a little bit about what post-truth design might mean for retail spaces and physical experience design. And Michael mentioned that you were teaching a class and that this, this had come up pretty significantly. What aspect of the post-truth era were you touching on? So I teach design history, and I think that if there was one kind of recurring theme in my class, it's that I really want these design students to understand how important and powerful design is and has been historically, because I want them to take what they do really seriously and be accountable. And so I, I think that this idea of post-truth really comes up in talking about like what that means. Like as designers, uh, how can you be accountable for the work that you're doing? How can you not contribute to what's going on that's that's wrong, that's maybe going in the wrong direction? And how can you, through your design practice, create the world that you want to see, be the change that you want to see? How does a designer recognize that they're in an ethical quandary or recognize that they have a choice to make? Potentially might be a case-by-case -case basis. Some of the things that I talk about in my class, it's more about doing things that you have, a, in some ways, have a personal connection to, like having a value system. One of the exercises that I have them do is write a manifesto. And there's like a long history of design manifestos, uh, designers specifically, you know, during the, the birth of modernism. You know, you have the futurists, you have the Dadaists, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and then, um, you know, during the 60s, you have people like, you know, Ken Garland, who did the First Things First manifesto. Why I find this assignment really helpful is that it actually forces them to figure out what's important to them. It forces them to kind of identify what their value system is. And I think once you've done that, then it's easier to kind of make choices that are based on that. That's fascinating. Does that have to do with choosing type? Does that have to do with geometry, three-dimensionality, like how do these choices end up manifesting themselves when it comes to designing a piece? It's not just philosophical or ideological. Mm -hmm. It's also really practical too, because 
I teach first year students, the field of graphic design is so broad, there's so many options and different areas they can go into. So at this point, they're, they're still figuring that out. So a lot of times what I'll do when they're writing their manifestos, I'll circle things and I'll be like, maybe you should think about this. Like, you know, someone will say, you know, I'm really interested in how design can uh, facilitate or connect to mental health, which I would respond like, well, maybe this is something you should research. Maybe this is the thing that you should pursue. And so I think a lot of times identifying those value systems, what interests them can actually lead to what area they go into after they graduate. Do you find your students being more skeptical of the information they take in in general than maybe we were when we were in school? Yes, I think they're very skeptical. I think they're skeptical about everything. In fact, I, I might be romanticizing, but I remember being in school for the first time and being in a certain age. And I felt like I was a little bit more optimistic. I definitely think that there's just so many things to worry about. And there's so many issues that you can't ignore. Mm -hmm. um, everything from politics to climate change. And that definitely is affecting their worldview and how they connect to uh, their career as creatives. Do they take design direction at face value? Or do they question that also? I only ask because I'm thinking back to when I was in school and it, when my professors were telling me something was good or something was correct or interesting, I just accepted that. Like, oh, they're in a position of power. They clearly wouldn't steer me the wrong way. And I know that the current generations of creatives are coming up in a completely different context. They want to check and prove every piece of information they're getting. How do you set up a foundation for them when they're rightfully questioning the building blocks? Specifically, just being so immersed in social media, right? They're just mm -hmm. seeing so many images all the time. So teaching history, kind of focusing on, on history uh, of design, I think what I really focus on is kind of providing a foundation because I think that just like any students, I mean, even, even when I was their age in school, you know, you're, you're trying to figure things out, like what's my style, what do I want to say. And I think history is a really great way to kind of figure some things out um, because you have so many examples of designers and creatives responding to things like political issues, different, you know, milestones that have happened, uh, different movements, uh, huge changes in culture. And uh, you just have all these really great examples of how people have kind of gotten through really tough situations and use design as a way to do it. Could you give us some examples of that, like examples of graphic design? having true power to change thought, to change perspective. Just thinking about now, like we're confronted with so many issues and we're in a time of, of such huge transformation. There's just so many examples of other times in history where similar things have happened and people have used design as a way to make positive change. I mean, I think of moments in the civil rights movement, everything from the women's movement. There's moments in the LGBTQ movement. Mm -hmm. There's a designer named Sheila DeBretville who created uh, the first Center for Women in Design. She also created the first design conference for women. I think it was the late 70s. Or someone like Emery Douglas, who was the Ministry of Culture and the main graphic designer for the Black Panthers. Mm -hmm. uh, you think yeah. of the Memphis sanitation strike in uh, the 60s, the I Am A Man protest. You think of how groups act up and Grand Fury uh, really dealt with the AIDS crisis in New York through design. So there's just so many moments in history where design is actually this really important tool to create change and awareness. Mm -hmm. and a lot of that was print work. You yeah. touched a little bit before on social media and the modern post-truth era was born out of social media and all the, the data that can now be manipulated or framed. And now that print has taken a second or third or fourth seat to digital design, do you find that it is 
harder for a designer to have an impact now that print is not as easily accessible? Or do you think it's easier? It's interesting that you bring that up because one of the conversations that we have, I think we had this conversation right after talking about the birth of modernism, where you have all these designers in between the world wars. It was a time of a lot of change and revolution. A lot of crazy things were happening. And so many examples of creatives during that time thinking that they can change the world through their work. And they they actually did in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And so the conversation that we have is like, look at these examples. Now think of all the issues that are here today, but you have so many more tools, right? Honestly, the feedback that I got was that somebody said, we're too distracted. We're too distracted to change the world. So I thought was really interesting. Oh, no. <laughs> and I and I got a sense that yeah. these tools that are so powerful, right? Yeah. I mean, these tools that connect us globally, they don't have that same sense that they can change the world through their work. Oh man. Through their creative contribution. We have to get the signal through the noise. That's exactly what they said. Yeah, that's exactly some of the feedback that I got. Of course it's very daunting, but it's unlike me, but I'm trying to be optimistic here. It's going against my nature a little bit. But there are always barriers to being able to communicate with people throughout history, right? And not everyone had access to the tools to produce. Not everyone had access to a printing press, if we go back to that era. You know, there's always barriers to mass communication. You can only yell so loudly. You know, the barriers to mass communication right now are so low. So there's so much mess out there. And so then I think it's going to take something like design to be able to get through that, right? You have to somehow attract people within this just mess of everything else that's there. And that's going to take good design in order to attract those eyes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hate to say it. What's coming to mind are memes. Yeah it's, yeah, it's if it's shared enough, it becomes a relevant message. But is a meme design? <laughs> I almost didn't want to mention it because I'm like, oh, man, I'm not sure memes are a design. But is a meme a modern day activist poster? You know, it's interesting. There was an article about memes in... This past week, uh, the New York Times Magazine. I feel like, is design a meme? I mean, maybe in its lowest form, (laughs) it's a meme. (laughs) There are so many great things about Instagram, right? I mean, Instagram can be this really amazing platform for uh, people who do any sort of visual work, right? Mm -hmm. It's a great way of marketing yourself and getting yourself out there. I think the negative effect of Instagram is that having so many images and now the way that we experience imagery, it's just so insignificant. So yes, I think within the context like Instagram, a work of design can turn into a meme. Mm -hmm. That's blowing my mind a little bit. I can't believe it it went there. (laughs) Your students, Gabriel, I'm curious, um, how long have you been teaching them? This year was my second year. So I'm still, I'm still a newbie. So, but, so they, they haven't left school yet, right? Even the ones that you taught your first year. They may still be in the academic world. Yes. I'm asking because I'm just wondering, it's such a different thing when you're a student and you can design and there's no client other than, I suppose, your professor and your degree and getting your grades and those things. But it's just a different world than real life. And I was wondering if, but I suppose not, that you haven't been able to watch your students ford that river into the real world from the academic world and how they deal with the choices that they could make if they have this manifesto that says that I believe in this, this, and this, and then they go out and their manifesto is being challenged by the fact that they need a paycheck and they might have to accept this client that they don't agree with, doesn't fit their manifesto or their belief system. How do you counsel them how to deal with those conflicts when they leave? Well, I think that compromises is is part of anyone's reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think part of growing and developing is kind of learning how to compromise and also figuring out what you're comfortable compromising and what you're not. 
Also, too, just because, you know, you go and work for a large tech company doesn't mean that you can't have values and you can't have standards. And actually, I think those are the types of designers that we need in these positions. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that we, we had talked about, I remember having this conversation was, you know, so you go to one of these companies and you are constantly, you know, fighting for things like accessibility and ethics and diversity, things that are important to you. And uh, one of the things that we talked about is I said, you know, you're not always going to be heard. You're not always going to be listened to. You're not always going to be able to make that change, but that's part of the experience. Just because, okay. you know, things are important to you and you fight for them doesn't mean that you're going to win every time. And I yeah. think that's kind of part of it as well. Mm -hmm. One thing I am optimistic about with the generations of creatives coming up is they do seem more willing to not take a job to make a statement, I think, than past generations. Uh, and I'm not sure why that is. I, I, I just find it to be uplifting. Uh, and then if you don't mind me saying, that's something that very much part of civilization's identity. If you don't mind me saying, you guys had a a sort of mission to take on clients that aligned with your values from the very beginning, even when it was not the most comfortable decision business-wise. And I can't help but think that you guys have something to do with that and that you would make a great example to them of, you know, just because when things are hard, you don't have to take every job and that it can really pay off. Yeah. So we're a pretty traditional design firm. Uh, we do... Uh, branding, identity, print, web, digital. But the thing that really sets us apart is that we have an ethos. We have a, a specific type of project that we work in. We work in the spaces of cause, culture, and community. Basically what that means is we seek out projects where people are in some way, through the work that they're doing, creating a positive social impact or somehow fostering community or advancing culture. The thing about it is it's actually a very natural, easy, organic thing for us. It's not like every time a project comes in, like, you know, we, we sit around and, and say, are we going to do this? Is, is this person creating enough social change? You don't convene a giant ethical council with, with staffs and <laughs> candles. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really not this, this like affected point of view. It's just this thing that's always come really natural to us. Uh, even before you formed the studio, I think we all felt this and kind of worked this way. We kind of know our value system. We have a very specific set of beliefs. And I think it just kind of naturally attracts these projects. Mm -hmm. And now that we have enough of them under our belt, it's definitely evident within the work that we do and in our portfolio. It just kind of perpetuates more work like that. So cognitive dissonance, how does that play a role for you, at least as it was described here? which is kind of like almost spot on to the actual definition. I believe the actual definition when I was when I was researching was the moment when you actually believe both the thing that you believed and the the contradictory evidence. And in design, how do you think cognitive dissonance translates in graphic design? How does graphic design play a role in that? Gosh, this is such an interesting topic and it's so complex. I looked up a little bit too, because Charles, when you first asked me about this topic, I realized, hmm, maybe I wasn't clear in my mind as much about what I thought that meant. And I was looking into it and now I'm wondering, some of the stuff that I did in my very superficial quick Google was talking about how the kernel of it is the sensation of discomfort at believing in both of those things at the same time. And people were going off on all these tangents of, so you, you have this sense of need to resolve it and you start going down these various psychological pathways. And, and part of me is wondering 
What if you deny the dissonance? Why do you have to accept the dissonance? For example, we were talking about um, ice cream, right? Oh, yeah. The example we used earlier when we were just chatting amongst ourselves was because we were trying to take politics out of it because it's just not as much fun <laughs> to talk about this in terms of politics. So we were like, oh, you know, I really like ice cream and I make excuses about why, oh, you know, I need the sugar or I don't know, I need some calcium. But then you see data that says ice cream makes you fat. And you can at the same time believe those two things, but it's uncomfortable. We were debating as to whether there are really people out there who would deny the science that ice cream makes you fat so that they could continue to eat ice cream without any feelings. Yeah. yeah. So then I was like, well, there's tons of people that do that, of course. And it, it makes sense. But whether or not the cognitive dissonance bothers them, you know, because you could just be like, yeah, I know this ice cream is bad for me, but... I'm going to eat it anyway because I enjoy pleasure. So, and then that, that's the psychological thing of introducing another line of questioning to the topic. It's very hard to distill the conflict down to just the two competing ideas that are causing the dissonance. And so we need to, I guess, try to circle this back around to how that fits into graphic design. But it's so it's, I guess, that's always a question in graphic design or design in general, really about competing ideas and how you reconcile them or if you force them to be the only two things that you're considering or if you acknowledge that everything is a lot more complicated out in the world. I did read an article about a mayor of a town in Florida recently mm-hmm. who I'm not going to get it's not it's not extremely political but it is it brings science <laughs> into it which is a little easier. Climate change was not a priority of his, and then he became a mayor of a town on a coast in Miami (laughs) and discovered that all the scientific evidence said that the town in 80 years or something would be under five feet of water. And all of a sudden, it became a huge priority. And when he went around trying to bring others to his point of view, no one chose to accept that data. They simply said, no, that's it's it's much further off than that because it felt more secure. And he previously was one of those people. And then all of a sudden he was forced to accept the data, whereas previously he did not have to. In a way, him getting the job as mayor forced him to punch through the cognitive dissonances, change his belief. But before then, the data had no effect on him. So maybe that's a better example than ice cream makes you fat. <laughs> but getting back to the topic of ice cream, that actually brings to mind a major moment of cognitive dissonance that I had once. So I used to live in New York and me and a group of friends, we would go jogging along the Chelsea piers. And then when we were done, we would always go to this one place and get smoothies. It was kind of like our post jog treat. And these smoothies were amazing. It was like the best smoothie <laughs> I've ever had. It was so good that I was suspicious. I was like, what, what's up with these smoothies? They're, they, there's, they can't be this delicious. And uh, I think my friends were like, just leave it alone. Let's just enjoy our smoothies. But no, I had to go investigate. So I remember going to the counter and like going towards the back of the counter where maybe customers weren't supposed to go and kind of just peering in and spying. And just I just really wanted to know how they made these amazing smoothies. And sure enough, it was like something out of a, out of a TV show. One of the smoothie makers, I saw her lift up this tub <laughs> and it is like kind of acne, it was like, like cardboard and then in huge letters along the side of it, it said ice cream. <laughs> and 
I was just like, of course, it was, it was too good. <laughs> but the thing is, and so that was a major moment of cognitive dissonance. But then I remember going back and reporting to my friends and they were so angry. They were so mad at me. Right. Yeah. They were, right. why, why did you have to, you know, why did you have to ruin it? Why did you have to educate yourself? Yeah. You bring the truth and destroy the pleasure. <laughs> but it's touchy because you didn't believe both at the same time. You didn't believe that the smoothie was healthy and also had ice cream. I knew that it smoothie wasn't like- <laughs> healthy. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> it's, uh, it's a little trickier. And I'm trying to think of another example but I think it's in terms of design, it can be how green something is or it can be numbers that are too good to be true or a brand that you're loyal to where you just refuse to believe it. A really good example might be Lance Armstrong. Mm-hmm. We all, before any of the data came out, just believed that the French so badly were so jealous of Lance Armstrong and that the guy was super clean. And of course, he couldn't. And all of us as a society refused to believe it, even when there was mounting evidence day by day that he was not playing by the rules. And there was sort of this tipping point moment where there was all this data. It was hard to ignore. It's really hard to put your finger on it, especially if you're a lover of logic, because then your brain immediately starts doing the work and trying to get to the solution. With graphic design, I thought about this when I was putting the notes together. It's all the messages we get are rooted in graphic design, other than verbal. So this podcast luckily escapes the uh, the uh, the graphic design filter. But everything we read online, all of the social media, all of the UX we use to get our information, that's the frame through which we get it. So how do we define your role in disseminating it? Because to do it without making it art seems the most honest, but the saddest. And... You know, how how does the art of it change the message, make the message truer or clearer or obscure a message? What are the tools that you employ? So would you say that the source of cognitive dissonance is the kind of taking in of information? Is that usually where it, what, yes. where it starts? Yes, essentially. Well, of unsiloed information, I suppose. So that's another aspect of it that's more political, whereas, of course, if you choose to take in only information you know is not going to challenge your beliefs, then cognitive dissonance is irrelevant. You'll never feel it, mm-hmm. which is why people... I hear about the cognitive dissonance. It has to bother you that you think that you're smoothie. You could just not care, and then you would have no cognitive dissonance. You could believe that the smoothie is unhealthy and believe that you're doing a healthy thing in your life by jogging. But if you just decided to not care then it wouldn't, there would be no cognitive dissonance, right? But you, it bothered you. You had cognitive dissonance as so you snuck behind the counter and then you know, destroyed the smoothie for your friends. Well, that seems like what your friends wanted. Yeah. <laughs> they were like, can't yeah, we just live in ignorance? Caring is essential to the creation of the dissonance. I think that the role of design is usually giving form to information. And so I was just thinking about the example that you brought up about uh, the mayor of the town finding out about the water levels rising. So, I mean, I think that could design be something that makes this information more palatable, more easy for mm. people to connect to? Could it be this kind of vehicle for kind of creating that awareness, that connection to that information? What I want to see for the, that mayor in Florida, <laughs> like, I, I don't know, uh, is- Maybe in my mind, it's a bit more like a political cartoon. But, you know, that's design also. Is yeah, All these people with their head their heads in the sand, you know, and it's a whole lot harder if you're trying to put your head in the sand and you're under five feet of water already. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I'm trying so hard not to think in political terms, but I can't help but thinking about the early days when Fox News was new, how 
bold and clear and in your face the type was which was very different than the typical media which was understated type you know the the scroll at the bottom of the screen was very very small and when more sensational media siloed media became a thing the type became bolder and louder and higher contrast and how the format changed overnight in a way yeah is more dramatic. Yeah, in a way that maybe potentially obscured further thinking. When you're trying to achieve the opposite, what do you do? If you're trying to not make people just swallow a pill as this is information, just believe it. For instance, with your students, that's probably not what you want. You recognize they're not going to take everything you say as gospel, want them to go on investigations. How do you encourage it? I kind of lead a little bit of a charmed life from the perspective of the designer. And that's one of the things I love about working where I do is we work with clients and people who are doing things that we truly believe in, Mm -hmm. people who are doing things that inspire us. And so it's so easy to respond to that with design in such a personal way to have a personal connection to the work that you're doing. But I, you know, I've also been in other situations. I've worked for kind of more corporate jobs. And I think that even in those situations that, you know, maybe I didn't love what I was doing or love the work that I was doing or the content that I was giving voice to through design, I would always try to find some sort of personal connection, some sort of way that I could in some way kind of connect and have that personal connection to to the work that I was doing. Even in the most corporate situation I was in, I was never doing anything that I actually thought was doing harm. Right. And so I don't know what that's, I don't know what that's like. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I can relate on some level, but again, yeah, doing harm is pretty harsh. I'm sure there are certainly situations that I haven't been in that fall into that category, but there are definitely, there was work I did previously in my career lifetimes ago where I knew I was putting a lot of effort in for the enjoyment of very few. Mm. And even those few would probably never appreciate what was there. And in one particular project I had, I walked through the space in the end and I saw the people who would be using it literally ignoring it. And it was a very empty, <laughs> difficult feeling. There yeah. were definitely moments in that project where I felt personally fulfilled and I had put together these details and these moments and really believed in the things I was doing. But then to watch all of that effort and time and money, not just of me, of like the hundreds of people that put this project together, just be ignored was difficult. And it made doing perhaps public work or nonprofit work, for example, on the other side of a coin seem a lot more alluring and a better use of the time. But yeah, again, not necessarily like, am I really harming the world Mm -hmm. um, by wasting good design? Well, probably not. Luckily, good design is not like a diminishing resource that you can just burn away. I I don't know what project you're talking about or what client necessarily, Charles, but I think a lot of it too. So this might, in your mind, not be remotely relevant with the extra information that you have that I don't. But so I, I feel like so much of the time, good design goes unnoticed because it should be, you know, mm-hmm. we, we all want attention, I suppose, like that your ego wants to be gratified by somebody being like, hey, that's awesome. I really love how that detail comes together. But I wonder, because I'm just making up in my mind who these people were, but that if they had seen the work and it was really shoddy 
that they would have said something and noticed and been super annoyed by it, but that because it was well done, it went unnoticed. That's possible. I, uh, I think a good analogy might be the best chef in the world making a six course meal for someone with a cold. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I mean, if any top chefs wants to come over to. <laughs> yeah, you'll find a way right to now. appreciate it, right? Yeah. But I mean, that's kind of what I mean. It's not that these, I'm not, I'm not saying that these were somehow terrible people, but just people who it was almost as if it's just given to the wrong audience. There was a famous case where uh, one of the most accomplished violin players in the world played in the in the subway in New York for several days and no one stopped to listen to it. You can put beauty in a place where it's simply not appreciated. And that's no one's fault. It doesn't make people evil for not recognizing they were listening to the most beautiful violin player. But there is a sadness about it. And there almost seems to be an ethics violation about that. That every hour of that woman playing violin deserves to be appreciated and should be and could be changing the world. And instead it's not. So not everyone has a trained eye or ear or yeah. anything to recognize the quality of things, right? And sure. so you they don't understand that if this is not in a museum and instead it's in a subway or it's not on the, you know, on the stage in a major symphony orchestra, they haven't learned or been trained at, you know, either formally or, or teaching themselves what these things are. And so they need that extra push to be like, hey, this is important to look at or listen to or see. And without it, sometimes it can go unnoticed because context is so important. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that a lot of times works of design can exist on multiple levels. And what I mean by that is there are so many perspectives out there and there are so many, you know, different people, uh, specifically if you're doing work that's in the public realm, there are so many different perspectives and I've noticed that a lot of designers who are, are, are doing work, they're doing work that maybe it's just about on one level being able to access information, but then there is an aesthetic component to the experience that they're creating as well, if you're in tune to that. And so, I mean, I think for me, a measure of success for design, uh, specifically graphic design, is accessibility. Like you, you, you can't leave anybody out. And as designers, we, we've all been guilty of, you know, doing work that's maybe just a little esoteric or a little too stylized or a little too designy. Mm-hmm. And I think that one of the things that I've learned over the years is that really, if it's going to do the job and it's specifically if it's in a, a public space, which so much design is, it, it does, it can't leave anybody out. It has to resonate with everyone. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. But building on something you said earlier about the power of design, playing devil's advocate is design. Are the stakes not as high when it comes to post-truth and design versus post-truth and politics and science, or are the stakes higher? Being accountable as a designer is important. And there's just so many different roles that a designer can do, right? And there's been a lot of criticism around the field of graphic design lately. Design has become so so much of a, of a commodity, of a way to create brand value. I wanted to mention an article that appeared not long ago in the, in the Walker blog It was written by a designer named Eric Carter. The title of the article was, Do You Want Typography or Do You Want the Truth? And in the article, Carter criticizes current practices in the field of graphic design. He basically talks about how designers aren't being accountable enough in the work that they're doing. They're not thinking enough about the societal implications of their work that they're contributing to, among other things, income inequality, dishonest marketing, and that they're feeding into the climate of celebrity and self-promotion that's really dominant in the field. But I think that this is something that's just prevalent in in all culture. Mm -hmm. And so there's a little bit of an element of don't hate the player, hate the game. 
And also too, you know, design is a an occupation. And so, you know, if you're working in advertising, this is something that's just going to come up. I mean, advertising is not truth for right. sure. <laughs> Let's uh, hope not. In fact, it's quite the opposite. At the same time, there is definitely is room in these places to make changes and to uh, make a positive impact. Sure. Brings to mind uh, an issue that I bring up a lot on the show, actually, which is the sort of the exodus of independent design to become in-house designers. This isn't uh, exclusive to graphic design, architectural design, landscape design. So many uh, companies are bringing these people in-house to only do design for that brand, to always be on brand for that brand. And the designer is being taken out of, it seems like to me, the only role of importance, which is making design decisions. And thinking about post-truth, if all design becomes marketing and all design becomes branding and all design goes in-house who is left to push things forward and send clear messages and make ethical decisions. So you guys are an independent firm. Are you concerned about the state of the industry and this sort of in-house phenomenons becoming more and more prevalent? We were just talking about this not long ago because it, it kind of ebbs and flows, doesn't it, over the years? Like sometimes everything will go in-house and then all of a sudden all these big companies will then want to work with kind of smaller independent firms. And I think that a few years ago, the talk was that, oh, everything's going in-house now, but now we're starting to see maybe it's going back the other way. Oh, maybe. Interesting. <laughs> Hopefully. That's good to hear. Um, for us, it's, it's good, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, for all of us, I think. Uh, it's just interesting that you brought up the advertising angle because I hadn't, I hadn't even thought about that in terms of post-truth. One of the interesting things about the research that came up actually was that the beginnings of the modern era was of the modern post-truth era originated with the cigarette companies. Yeah. That the cigarette companies were the first ones to really sit down and try to slowly and actively change people's views of facts. It was this long-term, 10-year-long assault on facts just because they needed to sell a thing. It's amazing that people used to think at one point cigarettes were healthy. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah, people just want would want to believe what they want to believe. But Talk I feel about like that's, cognitive dissonance. But here's so I can almost fully confess to this. So I am a huge. This is no secret to anybody who works with me. I'm a huge, huge coffee addict. I love coffee to an unhealthy degree. But every time I see an article that says coffee has fulfilled antioxidants and extends aging and blah blah blah, and it brings alertness, I'm like, yes, that's right, that's right. Coffee's great for me. I'm going to drink more of it. But every once in a while. When I see an article about, oh, there's this byproduct in coffee that could make you really sick or might not be that that healthy. And maybe we don't really understand the, the effects of coffee. Even as a somewhat intelligent, rational human being, my very first reaction is all these other articles say that coffee's great for me. And, it gives and you glowing skin that's right. and a shiny coat. <laughs> that's right. And every once in a while, I have this haunting little voice in the back of my head that says, oh, my God, or 20 years from now, are they going to be watching some show like Mad Men and be like, oh, my God, they all just drink coffee all the time. I could be just as guilty as every one of those people who was willing to believe that cigarettes were fantastic for you. Ugh. Going back to this Eric Carter article, one of the things that he says at one point, I don't I agree with it. And I think he's coming from a really great place. But I also think that the reality is that, you know, uh, specifically young designers just entering the field, you know, they're having to make compromises all the time to pay the rent. Mm -hmm. uh, but one of the things that he talks about is the fact that design can be something that facilitates manipulation and dishonesty. And he specifically talks about how, you know, a typeface can elevate a brand or make something feel expensive. And maybe it shouldn't feel expensive. Maybe that isn't honest. Or basically, he says, I'm quoting here, a change of font and a logo can increase worth of the product it's selling, 
but it can also deny access from people who may need it or trick people into thinking it's something it's not. Mm. But the thing that's the most significant about what he's talking about is the fact that a change in font can actually add brand value. Design is that powerful. I mean, I think that's something that's really inspiring, the fact that you can actually, with type, position something, give it actually create value. And so I, I think the thing is that this just kind of goes back to design is powerful. So if you want to use it for evil, if you want to use it to sell cigarettes or to uh, make people think that they're healthy, you're using it a, a powerful tool in service of something that's you know really terrible. But if you actually want to uh, change the world in a positive way, just know that design can be a really powerful tool to do that. So I think, you know, design is just this powerful thing. And if you're going to use it for bad, you're going to use it for bad or dishonest means. So mm -hmm. I, I just think that it's it's all about like what it's in service of. Yeah, this is I think we brought this up on the last post truth one that, you know, that design can absolutely be used for evil just as it can be used for good. And I forget exactly what we were saying right at the beginning when we were talking about creativity and you know, what you use to share it or to uh, channel your creativity to the world. I remember thinking that it reminded me of that previous episode because for sure design can be evil and design can be good. And it's just like your choice of what medium to express your creativity. We were talking about whether writing code and developers, whether that was a creative process. And I agree with you, Gabriel, that it's absolutely a creative endeavor, but it's a creative endeavor when it is creative people that are choosing to do it. It's a particular choice of what you're going to use to express your creativity. And you can use it for good. You can use it for evil. Code is the same thing as you know oil paint or something in that context. It's just the media for how you're going to share your creativity or communicate your message. And also, do you think that what we're really criticizing isn't necessarily design, but maybe capitalism or just like the kind of practices within capitalism. I mean, I mean, that's really what the, yeah. this, the yeah. whole cigarette manipulation yeah. was about. It was about selling cigarettes, right? Right. We can't blame design. Yeah. Design was the tool to sell an unhealthy product. And so, I mean, it, it, you could say that it was good design that sold that bad product in theory, right? Because it was Absolutely. successful. Yeah, it, for it, sure. It, it's intended. It was successful design, even though it was awful. <laughs> well, sure, the ethics of the designer played a role, but obviously the ethics of the cigarette company played a larger role. Not that I'm pro or con capitalism. I don't think I'm either. But, you know, capitalism, when it comes to like selling an entertaining movie or, or a good album, the do no harm doesn't come in as much as it does with something like cigarettes or healthcare. You know, the difference between pleasing shareholders and pleasing people watching a movie is not as big of a deal as pleasing the shareholders of an insurance company that's not making payouts. It's hard to go all the way to capitalism when any system we used would still be comprised of humans, <laughs> some of which would probably do <laughs> good things and some of which would probably do not so good things. But at least I like to think that designers today care more about choosing their clients and that if another quote unquote cigarette company came around today with whatever today's version of it might be, maybe it's coffee. God forbid. I think there's going to be people on both sides of that. There's going to be people who choose to do this work that is unethical in our opinion. Right. But right. I, I would hope choose less. Choose to do it because they, for whatever other thing that they have driving them, whether it's a massive paycheck or whatever, you know, designers are a diverse group. There's going to be people that we just cannot stand and think are undermining the world. It's like political propaganda from... But maybe this is a positive I, result of the post-truth era is that, you know, the skepticism obviously is a negative thing when you're skeptical and spending more time trying to figure out something that is ultimately true. 
But when someone is presenting you with a money-making opportunity, that skepticism might work for us all because that, that designer might sit down and think, let me see what's really going on here. And if this company really does what they're claiming and if that skepticism could be a healthy thing and a positive thing. Well, so knowing that as designers working today, we're all just so inundated with so many messages and so many truths or versions of the truth. Are there some questions people can ask themselves or ways that they can recalibrate to like really figure out how to move forward or how to figure out if they are working from a place of truth as opposed to post-truth? That's a good question. One I should ask you. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that, and this is really applicable to graphic design, you know, I feel like we're right now, we're all kind of working in the wake of modernism, right? And modernism kind of laid the foundation for our contemporary design practice in a lot of ways, both aesthetically, but also ideologically. I mean, if you think of modernism, it's so focused on the grid system and think of how we work digitally. It's, you know, it's, it's based on grids. Mm -hmm. And also modernism is all about distilled forms and uh, graphic shapes, which works really great in digital spaces, right? Really small on your, on your iPhone. But one of the things that I think maybe is worth rethinking is, you know, modernism was based so much on ideals, right? And, um, you know, perfect geometry, perfect portion. And I think that over the years, modernism has become something that's kind of evokes the idea of something being expensive, something being exclusive. And so much about marketing is aspiration. But at what point does aspiration become or facilitate inaccessibility? Does it facilitate exclusion? I mean, is that type of value even interesting anymore, right? Something being expensive. Mm -hmm. I mean, because now I feel like there was a time specifically maybe 80s and maybe 90s where that was considered like high design, like the more expensive it looked, you know, mm -hmm. the more desirable it was. But now that we're confronted with so many different issues, I mean, even in the wake of such the huge issue of climate change, is something being expensive really even meaningful anymore? Mm, that is a really good question. What do you think, Rachel? <laughs> I guess I'm just a pessimist about all of it. I would like to believe that we could all just say that designers have good intentions, but you know, there's going to be people that have their heads in the sand or under in the sand under five feet of water or whatever that care only about something looking expensive. I have to agree with you. I think we're a little spoiled it's actually. That will cater to that and that's a bummer, but there will be. You know? Yeah. Well, I think this is a little bit of Pacific Northwest thing. One of the things I really love about the culture here is that we are generally, as a, a people, not that way. We like yeah. to, sure, we all like to have quality things, some of which may be expensive, but the point is never that it's expensive. And we, in a way, right. stylistically, in a lot of ways, go out of our ways to hide that. Even if it's of the quality we want so that we're not so flashy to be like, hey, look at how much I spent on this thing. But then you leave the Pacific Northwest bubble and there's all these people that care about all this abhorrent stuff. Yes. Passionately. Oh, yeah. And coming especially from Washington, D.C. And, and you must have experienced that in New York a little bit, Gabriel. It's just like flash still counts for so much. So unfortunately, it's funny, I, I like to think of myself as an incurable optimist, but this is a way in which actually the Pacific Northwest might have made me less jaded about it because I respect that so much about our culture here and especially about the design culture here yeah. also. There's a really great DIY vibe mm -hmm. here. And even the highest end marquee designers in the Pacific Northwest, part of the aesthetic and part of the ethos is that it be more grounded mm -hmm. and that it not be just about how much we can spend, but is it worth it to do something interesting? And if that interesting thing has to be expensive, that's one thing, but it's not a requirement. I love that about 
being a creative here? Well, you've started to self-segregate, you know, I mm-hmm. mean, people come together because they have like minds, right? People gravitate to this Pacific Northwest mentality. And it makes it harder and harder. Like once you're in your group with your comfort blanket of, oh, we just, you know, we care about all the good things here. You know, it makes it hard to leave and shocking when you go to places where it's completely different. And then that makes it that much harder to create, you know, artifacts of design that then can cross those barriers. Mm -hmm. Well, we're we're getting close to being out of time, but I would want to ask you your overall thoughts, Gabriel on where you think design is going and how long you think this at least modern post-truth era where social media is feeding so much disinformation and designers have to do so much extra labor to design for a highly skeptical (laughs) public. Uh, Where do you think we're headed? Well, so I got the opportunity to interview Kenyahara who's been, you know, a hero of mine since since college. He's probably one of the most famous Japanese graphic designers who's alive right now. And I asked him the question and I thought it was just going to be a canned answer. I said, you know, what advice do you give to young designers? And I thought he was going to say something like, oh, follow your dreams. But instead he said, think about systems outside capitalism. Hmm. What I kind of took that to meant was because right now we're talking about all these alternatives to working in marketing and advertising. Mm I don't know if we're going to have some sort of crazy revolution and then all of a sudden not be a capitalistic society. But Mm -hmm. I do think that there's definitely room for some recalibration and some change and some rethinking in some of our practices, a lot of which came up during this conversation. And I think that the role that designers could play in any sort of transformation that's for good is just figuring out what their values are, is just figuring out what their idea of, you know, making positive change is and just really focus their practice on that. It's just kind of knowing who you are and then letting that lead you. I think that just asking yourself those types of questions, like what's important to me? How could I use my skills and my talents in a positive way? Just even being conscious of that, I think makes all the difference. Awesome, well said. We'll have to have you back on. It'd be fantastic. Thank you so much for, for sitting with us and chatting. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for listening. Please check out Design Goggles podcast on Instagram and Design Goggles on Facebook and Twitter. Also check out our blog on boardandvellum.com. There's always super cool stuff being posted there. And as always, please stop on by Board and Vellum in Seattle anytime for a chat with us. We would love to have you. Thank you again, and we'll see you all in a few weeks.